This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas when available uh, or on the streaming service and compare and contrast that movie with things from the past uh, in the same genre or by the same director or maybe featuring the same leading actor. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. On today's episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we are talking about the filmography of Mickey Rourke, a beloved and a controversial leading man whose movies go back to the early 80s, who uh, had a, has his ups and downs, has, has made a lot of great films and a lot of not so great films, and we're going to tackle as many of them as we can over the next hour. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm here with co-host Karsten Knox socially distanced via the internet as we record today's show. And uh, today we're looking at the career of Mickey Rourke. Uh, he's had a long, industrious, busy career. He's uh, he's going like gangbusters these days. Uh, his newest film that we're talking about is something that was out uh, on the festival circuit last year, a Canadian feature called Girl. But since that film, I think he's got like five other projects on the go the guy is a workhorse he doesn't stop and you know you, you gotta love that kind of work ethic i don't know what kind of bills he has to pay you always wonder when you see actors like him and nicholas cage and bruce willis out there still plugging away at feature after feature after feature sometimes quantity does not equal quality but uh he's he remains a compelling presence uh in films and i'm always curious to see what he's up to it's been a very up and down career since he became a star really with uh with films like The Pope of Greenwich Village and Nine and a Half Weeks after uh, a series of supporting roles up to that point. And uh, it's been a lot of fun going through these films. How about you, Karsten? When do you recall first becoming aware of Mickey Rourke as a, as a film star and actor? Uh, it was definitely in those 80s movies. And, you know, it's it's I think it's easy to forget that, you know, originally he was mooted to be the next big leading man in the mode of De Niro and Brando. He was sort of a method guy. He had a lot of electricity in his roles. It was impossible not to watch him when he was on screen. Sean Penn was rumored to have shown up on sets where Rourke was working so he could watch him in action. He's got all the charisma in the world and all the talent and that movie star intensity, but he kind of self-destructed. He had a reputation that he was hard to work with, he alienated his colleagues, and he gave up acting in the early to mid-90s to get into boxing. Now, the story is that his face got busted up and he needed surgery to sort of reconstruct some of the damage that was done. And he, you know, he just never looked the same again. I, I don't think there's any argument there that the man we see on screen these days is quite different looking and it's not all age. He's had a rough time of it, uh, physically speaking. But, you know, he's made a lot of forgettable B-movies in the late 90s and early 2000s. But every once in a while, he'd show up in, you know, something good, like he was in The Pledge, uh, Sean Penn drama starring Jack Nicholson. He was really good in a single scene in that film. And I remember seeing him in Bruce McDonald's Picture Claire, a Toronto set drama in the early 2000s. But yeah, you mentioned uh, the 80s work, um, I think maybe Body Heat 
was the first time I saw him that William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, uh, noir, neo-noir from Lawrence Kasdan. He is only in two scenes in the film, but it's completely magnetic there. It's a noir thriller, very much worth seeing. And then he was in a, in, in a movie called Diner, uh, where he was sort of an ensemble of young talents in a story about a group of friends in late 50s Baltimore who hang out in an all-night diner. You know, Ellen Barkin and Kevin Bacon are amongst the cast, and, and he was in Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish from 1983, uh, which he made from a, with another... The, Coppola made another Essie Hinton adaptation, The Outsiders, around the same time. But you mentioned The Pope of Greenwich Village. That's really worth seeking out. He is opposite an outrageous Eric Roberts. They play cousins living in New York, wanting to get rich quick, but they scam the wrong guys. And Roberts is kind of the fast-talking idiot, where Rourke is a little smarter, but not a, a nice guy. I wouldn't say he's a genius either. You sort of wonder why why Daryl Hannah stays with him, but uh, they don't. They both make quite an impression in that film, and and they look good in finely tailored suits. But yeah, so there's a lot of movies of his to talk about. I think we should start though with Girl. You you know it was shot in Ontario, up in I think Sudbury area. It stars Bella Thorne. And it, it is a gritty B picture. There are things about it to like. I don't think it's a great movie by any stretch, but it certainly doesn't have a very imaginative title. But it does have uh, a few moments of humor, an efficient action scene or two, and uh, a couple of impressive uh, axe throws. It's basically a revenge drama. The unnamed girl, she uh, is on a mission of revenge. Her daddy, who she hasn't seen since she was a child, he was a bad man and he hurt her, her mother and threaten their lives, so girl's gonna go and put a stop to him, and she has a, an axe in her um, in her bag. So she finds a way to the town bar where she meets up with uh, the bartender, played by Glenn Gould, uh, you know, noted Canadian actor, and Lynette Ware. Eventually, she does find her dad in his house, but he is um, he is dead, and he looks like he's been strung up and maybe even tortured. So who's responsible? Well, there's a uh, a guy named Charmer who's played by Chad Faust, who is the director of the, of, of the film, and uh, the sheriff, played by Mickey Rourke, who I think he's, in, at this point in his life, in his, he's in his late 60s, he's starting to look a lot like Roy Scheider looked uh, at the end of his life. They, they have that weathered look about them. Anyway, there's lots of family secrets that get uh, revealed. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there are problems. There were, I think some of the plotting is haphazard, but there are things to uh, enjoy. I like the, the score. I like the sort of, the, the ambitions of the film. It's not just an exploitation film. There is a bit of an art house quality to it. Stephen, what did you make of Girl? Well, I'm happy anytime someone takes on kind of a neo-noir approach to a film and a story. And this uh, Girl, uh, written and directed by Chad Faust, who also plays Charmer, definitely is aiming for that. It's kind of like a low-rent Jim Thompson kind of vibe about it. And uh, I, I appreciate that. I, I do agree that it does occasionally have the feeling of, of trying a little too hard. I mean, the characters are all, you know, basically Bella Thorne is girl. Mickey Rourke is sheriff. You know, Charmer is the only one who has, who seems to have kind of a real name. It at least is, is trying to do something a, a little different in that vein. And I like that. And I, I certainly like the appeal of, of Bella Thorne and Mickey Rourke, especially in their scenes together where they're facing off. And, uh, you know, various uh, plot twists are, are, are coming to light. Um, you know, that that's where this... Uh, this film is at its best. Of course, it does take place over the course of like one day and one night. I always like films that have that kind of compressed time frame. 
And and Chad Faust is an interesting actor as Charmer. I, I sometimes his dialogue is a bit overbaked. Like he he de- it definitely feels like he's writing him. He feels like he's writing himself a really great scene. <laughs> and I think he, and sometimes he just goes maybe should have eased off a little bit on some of the some of the pointless prattle that Charmer likes to spout. But then at one point he does say he says to to Thorin's character, you know, let me know if I'm talking too much. And she goes, you're talking too much. <laughs> so at, at, at least he's kind of aware of it. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a there's 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 a nice physicality to the the fight scenes that that take place and and just the idea of Bella Thorne wandering around this backwater town with an axe, you know, at the ready is 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 a pretty great plot device. You know, I can forgive a lot for just having some cool iconography and and ideas and 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 she does very well in uh, in the role here. Yeah, she. I, this is I'm not super familiar with her work. I I know she has. Uh, had some pop culture hits for she used to be work for Disney she's directed a porn movie she made a bunch of money when she went to OnlyFans and opened an account there but she's also you know clearly considers herself an artist and is doing interesting work as an actor I I uh, I did appreciate her charisma here too yeah yeah it's uh, it's definitely watchable I wondered about some things in the movie like uh, why does she feel, feel it was necessary to go to a laundromat in the middle of the picture like there's just the kind she's there for a reason and, and there just seemed there seemed like little detours that felt like the product of a script that needed another run through but yeah it, it they do parcel out the revelations about her backstory and about the backstory of her family in a way that I, I appreciate it. Yeah, there, there are moments that I, uh, I I like that it starts with her on a bus into town and it ends with her on a bus out of town. And uh, there were elements of that that I, I appreciate and that kind of atonal score that made everything slightly creepy, like it could tip over. I mean, if you've got a, a, a lead character who walks around with an axe, you know that this could be a horror movie. And I, I appreciate that suspense. Well, Mickey Rourke is kind of a monster here. Mm-hmm. So he, he's only a, you know, a few steps away from being Jason or Leatherface, I suppose. And I, I did, I did like his uh, performance here. I mean, and, and we know from films that we'll talk about later, like Angel Heart and, and Year of the Dragon and, and Body Heat, that he works really well in a, in a neo-noir setting. He seems really suited. And of course, we can't forget like sort of noir on overdrive uh, of uh, the Sin City movies in which he plays Marv, in which you know he is definitely one of the highlights of those two films. So uh, this, he really feels like he's in his element with this particular picture. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. You know, it's funny thinking about his career and, and uh, re-watching some of those early movies where, where oh, well, Johnny Handsome, and you talk about neo-noir, that might be the highlight. I'm, I know we're going to talk about that because I was it was so much fun to watch that movie again. I'd forgotten how good it was. But, you know, he had, I think what's kind of interesting about, about Rourke is that reputation of being a great performer, a great leading man, even though he alienated a lot of people. He did get his his comeback story, right? He did he did have that moment in 2009 where he worked with Darren Aronofsky and he made The Wrestler and The Wrestler uh, earned Academy Awards and Rourke got nominated for uh, for his role and I was pretty sure he was going to win that year. He didn't. But he uh, he got a lot of award season attention and he took the time to if not apologize but at least talk about some of the mistakes he felt he had made like he had he had been very ego driven he admitted and that he had he had alienated people that he had worked with because he just couldn't take acting as seriously as as for instance for instance boxing which is something else he did uh with his time and 
he it was almost like he was it was like the whole award season was one big mea culpa because he felt very <laughs> grateful for this opportunity to work you know in the industry again and and do good work uh, and it's not that he wasn't working previously. Like I mentioned the pledge. You mentioned Sin City. He was in uh, Once Upon a Time in, in Mexico. He was in Man on Fire. Domino. Domino, yeah. Tony Scott uh, worked with him a number of times. Yeah, these are, are films worth checking out from the mid-2000s. But uh, yeah, The Wrestler gave him a new lease on his career. And then he went on, went on to make Iron Man 2. So he made he was the villain. And he was quite you know convincing in that. But then, you know, after that, the, the sort of he went right kind of back to the B-movies. You know, maybe we should talk about, should we talk about the film he made in 2015 now, Ashby? Because this, sure, is, this is one where, you know, he made, he, if you go through the, to the 2010s, he's got lots of action movies, sort of generic genre pictures. But then he made this thing in 2015. Now, Ashby was written and directed by Tony McNamara, who went on to write The Favorite, which was yeah. amazing film for Yorgos Lanthimos. He crea- helped create The Great, which is this terrific historical comedy about Catherine the Great on television. Uh, and he recently wrote the screenplay for Cruella, a Disney movie that I really enjoyed. So this is a guy who's got talents and spades. And Ashby, although he had worked in television a lot before he made this film, this is his first feature film. In it, Mickey Rourke plays the the titular Ashby. He's a, a former CIA assassin living in a small town in Virginia who gets a terminal diagnosis. Now, he's got new neighbors, a mother and 17-year-old son, June and Ed Wallace, played by Sarah Silverman and Nat Wolf, who've just moved from Oregon. Now, the, uh, the father in that family is notably absent, but he keeps promising to show up, but he keeps not showing up. Now, Ed is a smart, sort of nerdy kid, and he tracks the interests of pretty nerdy girl Eloise, played by Emma Roberts. Of course, Emma Roberts is the daughter of Eric Roberts, Mickey Rourke's old buddy from uh, The Pope of Greenwich (laughs) Village, which is interesting to see the two of them in a film together. Anyway, she has an odd kind of family life too, although we don't really get to know her parents. We, we, We know she has an MRI in her house, so she's interested in studying people's brains. Ed wants, for some reason, he wants to be on the football team. He sees that the football team is kind of at, at his new school is the cool, the cool thing to do, and he thinks that uh, he can do this. So he he trains and he trains to get on the team, and and he wants this even though clearly the jocks hate him, and he does get on the team, and it's it ends up being kind of about masculinity and about violence. Because while all this is going on, Ashby is digging into his past as a killer. And he's finding out some of, at least one of his hits weren't for the state, that he was manipulated. So he starts visiting his former bosses and ending their days. So there's this like dark, he's, th- this violence on one side. But there's also violence on the school side of the story as well. Uh, I was really glad to watch this. I was surprised at how charming it was. Yeah, it's it, seem, it feels like a very typical kind of indie comedy of the mid 2010s i guess in a lot of ways but it has a lot of fun and enjoyable kind of moving parts that that you know at least makes it better than average i guess uh, that's sounds like it's damning with faint praise but i really did enjoy the film and it, it was nice to see rourke fairly invested in his character here because i know you know there are some things he does where you can probably tell he's kind of picking up a check and kind of just going on cruise control but here he, he has a different kind of character he's got to show a certain amount of vulnerability in uh, in what he does he's got to form this relationship with nat wolf's uh, character ed with the kid and they're very good together i like the relationship that they have this kind of oddball uh, mentor 
<laughs> student kind of thing that's going on there. And Sarah Silverman is great I, in her handful of scenes. I wish there was more of her in the film, but uh, she's great when she is on screen and very, um, very charming, very sympathetic. And I, I like Emma Roberts' character, uh, you know, the, the quirky young woman that we see in a lot of indie comedies, but at least she, she makes it her own. With having an MRI in her basement, I guess, <laughs> makes, makes it stand out a little bit. And uh, I, I like the kind of augmentation of the, the quirky indie high school student stuff with the trained killer paying for his past crimes. I thought that was a nice uh, nice kind of balance. So, there, yeah, there is some, some violence in this film that you don't really expect based on how it starts out as uh, Ashby tries to make up for, for killing uh, a good man who was basically getting in the way of the investments of his... Uh, of his former employers so it's uh i got my copy out of the library but it's it's on some streaming services as well and and uh, and definitely worth uh, taking a look at yeah I, I agree um it is a fun a fun movie and uh it's the kind of movie where you know if it was leon the professional you'd expect that ashby would train the 17 year old to be a killer and that's where that's where the learning would come you know the father figure but uh it's not quite like that i mean ashby does have some life lessons which the 17 year old take can take or leave and he's he's uh, smart enough and uh, self-aware enough to know that ashby's perspective on on being a man uh is the product of of uh, you know an older generation that isn't quite up to speed on what life is like in the current day but i, I appreciated that kind of tension and that the humor that that is mined from those exchanges and in the film i think ends a little too neatly there is a big football game there is you know the, the hero of the game, it's no surprise that Ed becomes a hero in some, some ways and he manages to get his, himself together. Um, it, it felt a little, yeah, a little predictable and, and unfortunately not as um, clever as some of the other aspects of the screenplay. But, but overall, yeah, this is, this is fun stuff. And, and when I discovered that McNamara was the sort of the auteur here uh, who had gone on to do such great work, I mean, the favorite was... Uh, no pun intended. My favorite movie of of the year it came out. <laughs> that uh, that I just I was so pleased to, to see it. And you know, talking about Mickey Rourke today, he does have nuance. He can still deliver a lot of charm in the right role, and this is clearly the right kind of role. Yeah, I love the fact that he teaches Ashby not how to fight or how to hold a handle a weapon. He teaches him how to take a punch. So it's like so basically how not to be afraid of impending violence because of course he's always flinching on the on the football field and he's he's basically teaching him how to at least brace yourself for for a body blow or a punch to the face and I thought that was okay that's that's a, a nice twist on that so I, I definitely yeah would recommend Ashby if you're looking for something with a bit of a charm a little bit of an edge but uh, but also some some great performances. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, we are in our second segment here uh, on our discussion of uh, Mickey Rourke's career in on our film podcast, and uh, we've we've been uh, talking about a couple of newer films of his and considering some of his earlier films. And now we're going back to the 1980s, his uh, his explosion into the culture and his uh, many leading roles. And we went back and watched Year of the Dragon from 1985, a violent thriller set in New York's Chinatown. And Rourke's second film, working with director Mike, Michael Cimino, he would make another film with Cimino later, Desperate Hours. And he was part of, of uh, Cimino's disastrous Heaven's Gate, but uh, he doesn't have much of a role in that. But here he is 
very much front and center. He plays uh, Stanley White, a racist cop who wants to clean up Chinatown. This is a is a movie, you know, the euphemism hasn't aged well. I feel like this is one of those cases. The film is in some ways well made, but you know, in today's world, I don't think this film would get made, and that's because Chimino and his co-writer Oliver Stone adapting a novel by a white writer Robert Daly purports to tell the story of a gang war in Chinatown and build this epic crime drama around Asian culture. And it uh, it does this without any Chinese collaborators beyond the actors on screen. And of course, the, the saying, nothing about us without us, is just the way things go now. And I guess back in the 1980s, you could get away with it. But your hero is also wildly racist bigoted and uh, he is you know i think we we get to see that he is the film is clear-eyed about his failings as a human being but by the end of the movie he has i don't know that he's come around uh, he he's, no. he's, not, <laughs> he's not he's not really he's still the hero of the story and i and i feel like the movie gets a lot of mileage supporting that attitude and unfortunately that's to the cost of the asian character's in the film. So yeah, it, it's it's one of those films also that I like Rourke in many things, but I feel like he's too young for this role. They they put some gray in his hair to make him seem like he's supposed to be in his 40s even though he's clearly in his early 30s. The the makeup and the hair isn't consistent, so it varies from scene no, to scene. No, it is not. And that's a problem. I think if they had found Clint Eastwood or Gene Hackman in this role, it might have been a lot more nuanced and a lot more interesting. But uh, yeah, what, what did you make of it, Stephen? In fact, I think you're right. I think Clint Eastwood was one of the people they approached about uh, taking the lead. But of course, at the time that this came together, I mean, Cimino was working with, uh, I think it was like Dino De Laurentiis in Italy he was producing. He was sort of persona non grata after basically destroying United Artists with Heaven's Gate. So it's amazing they gave him another shot. But this film, which apparently was done, came in either on budget or slightly under, like he actually, you know, pulled it off. It wasn't uh, the the complete nightmare that Heaven's Gate was. But uh, you're right that the, the film uh, does not play terribly well today. The, Rourke, he's only redeemed by the fact that his superior officers are incredibly more racist than he is but that doesn't really let him off the hook at all and he's got this uh very troublesome relationship with uh tracy the tv reporter played by ariane who's a model who uh whose lack of acting experience is sadly quite evident throughout the film i don't know if the story was that she was dating chimino at the time i'm not sure what the story was on that but it's uh you know it's it's one of the many flaws in terms of the the casting yeah i mean you, and casting is something you don't always think about when watching a film but here you're quite often thinking you know if only they had so and so for this part or whatever the the one highlight i guess in terms of that is john lone from the last emperor as uh you know, rising crime boss Joey Ty. He's very good in the role. Uh, he's very charismatic, and he has that kind of air of, of of authority and street smarts about him. And and he's certainly one of the highlights of the film. Also, Victor Wong, a character actor uh, who's been in hundreds of films. You know, I'll automatically think of um, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, he's certainly a guy I like to see in any film. But the tone of the film just feels incredibly tone deaf. And I don't know if Oliver Stone's ham-fistedness is to blame for some of that or, uh, you know, Michael Cimino's just kind of go-for-broke mentality because it is very well made. I mean, his you can see why 
Jamino uh, was a skilled filmmaker when he just kind of knuckled down and got to it. The, the, the final action scenes, you know, the final showdown between Rourke and Joey Ty, between uh, Rourke Stanley White and Joey Ty, uh, is very well done. It's very atmospheric, very well filmed, uh, very cinematic, but the content of the of the film is very sour. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So, uh, yeah, let's let's move on then and consider a few other films from the mid '80s uh, time. Mickey Rourke getting leading roles at this point. Maybe his most well known role from the era was uh, Adrian Lyne's erotic drama Nine and a Half Weeks with Kim Basinger. I have a soft spot for the movie, even though erotic thrillers have really gone are really out of fashion, and and this one has certainly has its problems but it's the it's the stylized look of the film it it is so 80s looking in a way that i mean maybe next to top gun which was made around the same time no other movie looks more like the 1980s to me than nine and a half weeks <laughs> maybe tony scott's vampire picture the hunger i think has that look as well but uh, yeah in 1987 Rourke made Barfly, where he sort of a loose adaptation of writings by Charles Bukowski. I like his performance in the movie. I didn't adore the movie, but he's good in it. Uh, worth checking out as well for for a role uh, by future Borg queen Alice Kriege uh, as a journalist. Rourke was also in Prayer for the Dying, which uh, has him a as an IRA gunman looking for absolution from Bob Hoskins' Priest. That is a movie that uh, it's on Amazon Prime. It's it's a bit of a dirge. I, I found I struggled with it, but again, a, a, a different kind of role for Rourke, and certainly he's getting ch- a chance to really show what he can do at this point. One of the films from 1987 that has really uh, continues to be a favorite of mine, and I think of yours, Stephen, is Angel Heart, which we talked briefly, I think, when we did our episode around movies from 1987. But Alan Parker's supernatural thriller. Is is so good, and I know you rewatched it. Uh, what did you? How did it hold up for you? Pretty well. I mean, Alan Parker was pretty wonderful visual stylist. I mean, obviously he made the Wall, uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. I mean, it, to turn that record in, into a movie is a, is a pretty uh, incredible feat. And and you know, here he's it's just art directed to the hilt. You know, it's it's like the mid fifties. It's purely steeped in in noir. And, and stuff and voodoo tropes and and uh, Rourke is is great as Harry Angel. Uh, he just seems to fit that kind of weather beaten private detective character so well here. And you know he's got a formidable opponent in Robert De Niro as uh, as the mysterious man who hires him to look for a long lost uh, singer who he has under contract named. Johnny Favorite, which is a name that may mean something to people in and certainly in Halifax and, and and maybe across Canada because the name was adopted by a uh, local swing band singer that had some success uh, way back when. So uh, it was kind of funny just hearing that name over and over again over the course of the film and just thinking about uh, this kind of tenuous Halifax connection mm. to it mm. all. And, and and I thought Lisa Bennett was quite uh, effective as Epiphany Proudfoot, the, the woman that Harry Angel eventually connects with when he gets to Louisiana and who helps uh, get him a little closer to his goal. And it does kind of overdo things in a, in a kind of a, almost a music video kind of way with some of its sequences and so on. But that it's it seems very typical of the time in that regard but i i felt like it was it was a visual treat work is kind of at its peak as a as an actor as a screen presence you know i can see where some of those i, I think there were some new james dean uh comparisons being made at the time and watching this film you can really see where those come into play 
and it's 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 definitely worth a rewatch. I, I'm not sure where it's uh, streaming at the moment, but there are sort of import discs of it you can get. And I'm sure it'll pop up again at some point in the future. Oh, yeah. It, it really holds together. I, I love De Niro in the film. He's not in it much, but of course, he's front and center on the poster and in the, the DVD box. He, he's quite good. He makes strategic appearances. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> and also, oh, blues great Brownie McGee is great as Toot Sweet, a uh, blues guitarist that uh, becomes a source of info for, for uh, Harry Angel. He's, he's not in it a lot, but I mean, he was a musician. He's not known for being an actor, but he's very charming and gets some great dialogue uh, in the film as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the, the book, you know, was all based in New York City, but they moved the, uh, the, the they start in New York in the movie, but they go down to New Orleans. And that brings a lot of mood and atmosphere to the uh, story. So after Angel Heart, Mickey Rourke uh, continued to, to make pretty high profile films, some of which kind of vanished, like Francisco. Uh, <laughs> Deservedly Yeah, so. I think so. Um, Homeboy <laughs> is an interesting boxing picture. Uh, it is. It, it didn't. I don't think it did well in at the box office. It's one I had missed back in the day, so I was glad to catch up to it now. And I think it would. It's an interesting sort of sports drama and would make a good double feature with Rourke's uh, work with the wrestler. Here he plays Johnny Walker. He's done something. He does something to his jaw, sort of offset his face, and it gives him this strange kind of hollow cheeked look. It's a great physical role for Rourke. He kind of slouches into it, all denim and cowboy hats. He's a he's the pugilist presumably based maybe on his early days as a boxer because he actually writes the movie as well under a pseudonym and uh, he barely speaks a lot of heavy lidded looks he's not too bright at one point he admits he's never heard of jews which struck me as a strange moment but uh, anyway he, uh, he meets this fight manager in asbury park new jersey a manipulative sleazy wesley pendergrass nicely named played by christopher walken you know he's sleazy by his the way he wears a white blazer and a lot of great suits. It's a great role for Walken. He is the highlight of the movie, I would say. He's part manager, part terrible lounge performer. He reminded me a little bit of Ben Gazzara's a character in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Oh, yeah. But anyway, it turns out Johnny Walker uh, has been concussed once too often, and a, a doctor, the great Ruben Blades, says he's got a fractured temporal bone and he shouldn't get hit in the head again. Now, this is not a movie that's in a hurry to get where it's going. It's more of a collection of, of moments with a lot of solid character actors. And as it goes along, it becomes kind of a crime drama in the last moments. Uh, it's great to see John Polito again. He has a good role in it. The part of the movie that was I struggled with was the romance with Deborah Lee Fuer. Excuse my pronunciation if I'm off base there. She runs a fun fair and takes kids on miniature horse rides and Johnny Walker falls for her. The locations, I think, on the you know uh, Jersey coast do, do bring some charm. And I, but I didn't find it hugely satisfying as a boxing movie. I think the scenes in the boxing ring aren't the most convincing I've ever seen in a movie uh, about boxing. And there's an outdoor finale where it starts to rain and it just the plausibility just goes out out the window. Yeah. What did you make of uh, Homeboy from 1988, Stephen? Well, I wound up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. I, you know, it, it was clearly a, a passion project for Mickey Rourke. Apparently, he told Christopher Walken about it when they were on the set of Heaven's Gate. He had this script for a boxing picture. He told Walken about it like a decade before, and Walken just said, "Tell me when you're going to make it, and I'll be there." So, so you know, th there's a certain uh, 
camaraderie between the two of them that started behind the scenes a decade before this film even got made. And, uh, and I feel like Rourke is pretty committed to the project uh, as an actor. And, and you know, I, like I said, I don't know how good the writing is per se. It's, it's a script that he'd been polishing for a decade. But one of the things about it is that it's directed by uh, Michael Sarazin, not the actor Michael Sarazin, but another spelled differently. But he's uh, this is his only directing credit. He was the uh, director of photography on Angel Heart. And basically, when they were making Angel Heart, Rourke asked him if he wanted to direct Homeboy because he didn't want a director directing his his work. He wanted someone who would make it look good. But, you know, Mickey wanted to be able to be calling the shots on the set. So he didn't want someone who was he didn't want a power struggle with a director while making this film. And, you know, while it does look great, I feel like maybe it, they're could have been a firmer hand behind the camera but obviously it probably wouldn't got made because that's not what Rourke wanted out of this picture so you know it's it's kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't but but I I, you know I like Rourke's performance as this fairly sensitive sympathetic boxer and 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 you know Walken just uh, takes the role and runs with it the scenes where he's performing in the nightclub I thought were hilarious he's doing these terrible renditions of show tunes (laughs) um And, and 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 terrible comedy and and just having the time of his life from the looks of it uh, it's such a a fun character for him to portray this 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 sort of strutting peacock either on stage or whoever he's he's always giving a performance whether he's trying to sell somebody on an idea or his heist or whatever and uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it and I like and I like the Asbury Park settings of it uh, it's nice to see parts of that i've only been there once but i saw streets and buildings i recognized and i I felt that that was well used i don't know how many movies it's been in so it's a nice uh nice setting for this kind of uh down at the heels boxer story i i don't know how realistic in term it is in terms of showing the boxing world you you had some issues with that as well but i feel like it does sell a fairly convincing sleazy low-rent boxing kind of environment especially with people like john polito populating it uh, i think that makes it seem realistic in its own weird way the one the one thing i did have an issue with in a big way was the very monotonous eric clapton guitar score which by by the end of it it just felt so 80s just these these kind of non-stop blues riffs that just would not go away (laughs) by the end of it i just you know i almost wanted to watch it with the sound off by the end of it it's funny how that how quickly that dates it eh it's like clapton did his score for a lethal weapon and that worked pretty well i thought for that movie in also in 19 19 i guess it was 1987 that he did he did that film came out but yeah i'm listening to it and going I didn't realize it was Clapton. I was like, who is doing the guitar work here? Is it is it Mark Knopfler? Uh, but no, no, it's it's kind of a Knopfler style, but it's not him. And then, of course, then I checked online, uh, Eric Clapton with Michael Kamen. Yeah, it, you're right. It's it's a little, it's dated. But funny, I, this is actually a good way to segue into the next movie we're going to talk about. Yes. Because the next <laughs> movie, which is Johnny Handsome from 1989, the score is by Ry Cooter and uh, Ry Cooter's score, for some reason, hasn't aged, and I'm not sure what the big difference is, but Cooter's slide guitar, I would argue, still holds up. It's a gorgeous-sounding music. What do you think about that, Stephen? Are you, are you a fan of Cooter? I mean, did you think it was it worked better? Well, I thought the exact same thing. I thought, okay, well, this isn't too far away, but it's, it's, it's more upbeat. Um, I mean, the, the film is set in New Orleans, so... It, it has a lot more of that kind of feel about it, and there's a, a bit more joy in it. For my money, I, I feel like Gooder's a more versatile guitarist than Clapton is, uh, and, and which is just obvious from looking at his 
all of his work with the, the, the Buena Vista Social Club, but also with a number of uh, classic blues artists and, and in his work with jazz artists and so on. So Cooter is the perfect person to score Johnny Handsome. And uh, it's got a lot more zest to the music. And that brings a lot to the film, which already has a lot to recommend it in my mind. It's, it's, it's one of the better kind of later neo-noir B pictures, I guess. It, it, it's a B picture and it knows it's a B picture. So it has fun with it. It doesn't try to rise to some new level it's just an enjoyable character driven atmospheric crime caper movie with uh, a couple of neat twists on the way and some 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 great casting so uh what more could you ask for yeah absolutely directed by the great walter hill rourke plays a new orleans criminal with a disfigured face the makeup's actually pretty convincing he gets a second chance with a surgically restored mug imagine goes into surgery comes out and he looks like Mickey Rourke. I mean, that's that's a pretty sweet deal. Um, but will the question is, will it make him a better person? It's a kind of a compelling philosophical question for such a gritty noir. Um, early on, there's a robbery in this this rare coin collection that's shot mostly in fisheye lenses, and uh, it definitely establishes the heavies in this movie. Ellen Barkin and Lance Henriksen as Sonny and and uh, Rafe, uh, and then we get Morgan Freeman as a cynical cop who is on the scene and. Uh, you know, watching over Johnny's, uh, you know, progression. And he doesn't believe that Johnny's going to become a, a better person. And uh, Forrest Whitaker plays the, the doctor who, who works on him and, and changes his life. And when Johnny gets out of prison and out of surgery, he gets a job at, the, at a, a shipyard and he meets Elizabeth McGovern. And, and there's this real shot at redemption there. But, you know, it quickly we find out that Johnny Handsome has a... Uh, has a plan and it involves connecting with his old colleagues in crime and of course they don't recognize him so it's uh yeah it's a wildly enjoyable film i i always remembered liking it and i've seen it a few times over the years but probably not in 15 years and uh and putting it on again there's a scene where rourke finds himself changed his character johnny sees himself in the mirror and realizes he's you know, his face has changed. And it, 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 some of the best work, I think, in his career, that moment where he's someone who's not used to showing emotion and he, he's overwhelmed by emotion and you just get that, you really get that moment. And, and sometimes it sounds like he's doing a Marlon Brando impersonation, which I also appreciated about the film. There's a little bit of, there's, I think there's some humor in that performance. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the, the bad guy getting uh, plastic surgery plot is, I mean, it goes back to Dark Passage with Humphrey Bogart where, he gets out of jail and he gets plastic surgery, but then, you know, his, his past catches up with him. And, and Johnny Handsome obviously takes that idea and takes it to a real extreme from having this, I guess, acromegaly, I think is the, the condition that he has at the start of the film, which uh, Forrest Whitaker corrects just in time for, for things to go horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, everything about this film, it, it knows what it is. The, the actors are right in the correct uh, zone for their characters. I mean, Ellen Barkin and Lance Henriksen are way over the top as his former betraying cronies, but they're perfect. I mean, they're exactly what you want. You want a lively, gut-bustingly evil performance, and they they deliver it in in, uh, in a big way. And, and and it's great to have Scott Wilson briefly as his uh, his mentor at the start of the film too. He's perfect in that role. Everybody is is just so perfectly suited to what they're doing, and and really goes to the to the wall for for their characters and for this story. And uh, it's yeah, definitely still a lot of fun. You know, thirty years later. Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. 
How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to part three of Lens Me Your Ears. And today, Karsten and I are looking at the films of Mickey Rourke based on a fairly recent thriller called Girl. It was shot in Canada, but he has such a rich filmography, you know, in a career filled with ups and downs. It was it was fun to go back and either revisit ones that we loved or maybe check out some of the things we've always been meaning to get to. And one of the films in that latter category is The Desperate Hours. It's a remake of a 50s thriller slash film noir, which starred Humphrey Bogart as a desperate killer who's holed up in the, the home of a of a middle class family. He's he's on the lam and uh, he needs them to keep quiet so he can lie low until the heat cools off, and then potentially maybe use them as hostages to get out of a uh, the tight situation towards the end of the film. So it it seems like uh, when we were talking about Humphrey Bogart and the relationship between Johnny Handsome and um, uh, Dark Passage uh, in the last segment. Well, now here we have a straight up remake of a Humphrey Bogart film with Mickey Rourke as the uh, the criminal in question who's uh, made a daring, I would say somewhat implausible <laughs> escape from custody and he's holed up in the home of a, of a middle class uh, suburban family uh, with uh, with Anthony Hopkins and um, and Mimi Rogers as as the, the, the couple who are having some issues uh, between themselves and uh, in come this trio of criminals led by Mickey Rourke's Michael Bosworth to uh, to kind of throw everything off. And uh, as you know, that under the, the pressure of this horrible situation that you ha- get the feeling that they'll probably be coming closer together. And in fact, uh, that's pretty much what happens. The unusual thing about this film is it's, it seems like a fairly straight up kind of story and yet it's directed by Michael Cimino so somehow Michael Cimino in 1990 is getting another shot at making a feature film after basically being known for expensive flops I think he'd also made The Sicilian at this point which was going to be another dream project I think based on a Mario Puzo novel that was also not a commercial success but here he is getting another chance to remake this um, fairly mid-level Humphrey Bogart film from the 1950s and uh, it is I don't know. It's kind of a train wreck. <laughs> it, it, it seems like it would be a, a can't miss to just kind of tell this story. But Chimino gets everybody to play everything at kind of 11. And uh, it, it by the end of the film, it kind of grates on you. It's just every character is is fairly over to- over the top. The squabbling between Hopkins and Rogers characters is is played out at full volume. Uh, as much as I like uh, the actors David Morris and Elias Coteus, who play... Um, Bosworth's henchmen they play it super dumb and super lunk-headed and I felt like those characters could have used a little something extra as well so it it just gets more over the top as it goes along and I was uh, was kind of uh, kind of disappointed even though it had that kind of watching a train wreck kind of feel about it yeah I'm totally with you here Stephen uh, I liked how it starts it has a real Hitchcock vibe to it the first person we see is Kelly Lynch as the icy blonde driving a Jaguar to this very tense kind of almost Bernard Herrmann-esque style score. Uh, and I think, okay, so you're, you're setting up this like cinematic tradition here. I, I can, I can be down with that, but you're right. It's all pitched at such a high, like it, everything is starts at this ridiculous operatic tone. There's nowhere for it to go. Um, I don't think as much as I enjoy Hopkins, you know, recent 
Oscar winner Anthony Hopkins. Uh, here he just barks all the time. He yells and he screams, and he's just unconvincing as this this kind of this father with this like um, very uh, this sort of. I think he's a Vietnam vet. Like I just don't buy him. And and as you said, Elias Coteus and David Morris both very intelligent actors who have done really nuanced work in other films they they're just thugs here and they i just find i find it a hard time buying them i think i think that rourke typically rises above the material he has a a controlling intensity that really works for the role but um it's not enough it doesn't save the film and even someone like lindsey krauss who plays the fbi agent i really like her in most things she, here she's got this like benoit blanc style accent and i just <laughs> i just i just didn't buy it so uh yeah i can't say it yeah, shot in Utah. Why does she have this incredibly strange Southern accent? And that the, the her their base of operations with the giant photos all over, like over the wall, and it it just uh, none of it rings true in any way, shape, or form. No, unfortunately. And you know what? Some you could say the same thing about the next movie we're going to talk about, but in a more fun way. And that's Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man from 1991, a Simon Windsor film. Uh, it's made. It's a weird little movie. Like it's made in 1991, but it's supposedly set five years in the future when people are doing <laughs> in '96, where people are putting drugs in their eyes. And all the characters have like the names of of American brands, either cigarettes or uh, or branding uh, marketing tools. Rourke plays Harley Davidson, and what do you suppose he rides? Um, it's it's basically it's you know it was made in 1991, but it's it's a throwback to the 1980s, the buddy action comedy scored by hair metal. Um, with two stars, kind of both of them at the time, on a slide down to te- at least temporary obscurity, it's uh, it feels sort of desperately old-fashioned, sexist, and racist in places, but also so tongue-in-cheek you could kind of read it as a satire of the very thing it's sort sort of trying to endorse. It's a it's a bizarre relic, that's for sure. Yeah, it feels like a live-action version of a McBain movie from The Simpsons. Uh, you know, like, like he, it's just like the dialogue is just one cliche after another. And, uh, the fact, yeah, it's made in 91 set in 96, but feels like it's from the eighties. So it has this completely out of time feel about it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bad guys in their trench coats, their Kevlar trench coats, who are just this unstoppable force of, uh, of evildom trying to track down uh, Harley and, and Marlboro man. And uh, you know, it was led by Daniel Baldwin, just to, just to reinforce the, the cheesiness of it all. And, and, and then you, you, you read up on the film and it's clear that they just wanted to do this kind of splashy music video style remake of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid to the point that they actually lift entire plot points from which Cassie and the Sundance kid, like having to jump from a high place into a swimming pool instead of a raging river and that kind of thing. And it, it just invalidates it all the more. And yet it's, it's such an artifact of its time. It, it's completely fascinating to watch, but the stars are fairly checked out of the whole thing as it's progressing. And I, I think Mickey Rourke has said that this is the, the movie that made him want to go back to boxing. Yeah. Yeah. I think he has. And uh, I mean, with lines, like he says, it's better to be dead and cool than alive and uncool, you know, you know what <laughs> I, you're I wrote dealing that with. down too. <laughs> um, uh. I, I did enjoy, there is a, like an establishing shot of downtown Los Angeles and there's a big poster over the street, a billboard for die hardest five, <laughs> which I made me chuckle. Um, 
you know, but yeah, this is, it, it is a bit of a, a train wreck, uh, and maybe watchable for that, but I, I don't even know then. Um, so let's move on to White Sands, which Rourke made in 1992 with Roger Donaldson. He's one of those sort of quality journeyman filmmaker, uh, filmmakers who does a lot of thrillers in his career. He's still working, actually. Um, here, Willem Dafoe is a small-town sheriff in New Mexico who stumbles upon a briefcase full of money out in the desert in the company of a corpse. Even though he's married to Mimi Rogers, as her again, um, and has a kid, he jumps into this undercover operation to find out where the money came from and who the dead guy was. He's, it's kind of like Passenger. He, he takes on the dead guy's uh, uh, identity, and uh, he gets drawn into this group of dodgy folks who are looking to buy a pile of black market military ordnance. And that's where Mickey York comes in. He's the arms buyer, though he's disgusted by the arms sellers. It's a weird line he has to watch, a walk. Um, but in the middle of all this is Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who's kind of a middle manager for people who want to spend money. And she's great. I really like her. I feel like she's the MVP of the film. And it makes you realize how good she is. And I wish she had a higher profile career in, in movies uh, because she's in a bunch of things in the early 90s, and then she vanishes for a while. Uh, and then Sam Jackson shows up amongst a bunch of feds, some of whom aren't quite on the straight and narrow. So uh, it's a noirish tension going on here. You don't really know who to trust, and, and I liked a lot of that. But um, I don't think it's a great film. It's an interesting interesting film, largely for the cast. Uh, you know, the the problem I think I had with it is is Willem Dafoe's Ray, who gets involved in this deal. I, I didn't quite understand his motivation. Why would he stake his life on this? He's just a sheriff in a small town with a family. It doesn't make much sense that he's willing to get himself drawn into this. But he uh, but Rourke, again, you know, he gets to wear some fancy blazers and he gets a steel tooth and he gets a good scene late in the running where he reveals some important information. Uh, and there's a great 1963 corvette convertible so you know it's slick there, there are things to enjoy <laughs> it, it's it's a slick film of its time uh that's uh you know again in that noiry kind of uh vein that uh that work certainly flourishes in and uh daniel pine who wrote it has uh most recently he's been writing for the show bosch which is uh i haven't watched bosch but i hear it's a very good kind of detective crime serial uh, kind of show which uh, I, I should probably check out at some point. So it seems like he's in his element as well. And I, I guess I'm with you that the, 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 the sum of the whole may not really add up to the, the great parts that this film has. And yeah, trying to figure out uh, uh, Ray's uh, motivation from scene to scene, it, it's, it's um, not always entirely clear you know, when he, when he has clear moments where he could just get out of this whole thing and just, not getting any deeper, but maybe it's because he's a small town sheriff whose life up to now has been fairly uh, uneventful. The chance to do something uh, with a bit of mystery and a bit of edge to it uh, appeals to him, I guess. And and certainly encountering uh, Mary Elizabeth Antonio's character, Lane, uh, is probably appealing on some level as well, even though he's a supposedly a devoted married man. But um, uh, yeah, I, I I enjoyed revisiting this film. I, I you know it is it has that kind of slick look of the time samuel l jackson is terrific as the fbi agent whose motivations you don't understand either but uh yeah it's 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 kind of a relic uh, that uh i can't imagine watching this for the first time now but but it was it was fun to rewatch. yeah i i agree and this is i think if there's a theme of of today's episode it's it's that many of these movies are fun to rewatch, and uh yeah and and 
Rourke is his charisma. You know, it wins out even in more recent films where he is uh, where the the quality of the pictures doesn't often uh, you know respect his his talent. Um, but uh, yeah, we should talk before we we finish on our our look back at the films of Mickey Rourke. We should talk a little bit about the Rainmaker because it is an example of a film where we he has a supporting role, but he makes the film better for where he, when he's there. And unfortunately he's not in it very much, but when he is on screen, he's solid. Um, and it's funny, this is another plot from a Hollywood movie. Uh, this plot would not work in Canada at all. Um, the rainmaker is a, uh, is a John Grisham legal thriller from the 1990s when Grisham was like, he was like the Marvel cinematic universe in the 1990s. He made, there were so many, movies made from his books and they were sort of a guaranteed box office success and somehow producers got Francis Ford Coppola come on board. I guess I read somewhere that Coppola really liked the book. He read it all in one go when he was on a flight somewhere and he he that's why he wanted to tell this story. But it's just, a, it, to me, it felt like a very functional, um, generic, boilerplate uh, legal drama and with none of Coppola's, I mean, this is the filmmaker behind you know, Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, and even Bram Stoker's Dracula. And you would never know that that filmmaker is the one who made this movie. Uh, it stars a very young Matt Damon as Rudy Baylor, a Memphis lawyer in training who goes to work for the very shifty Bruiser Stone, played by Mickey Rourke, who with uh, an insurance company stooge named Deck, uh, played by the great Danny DeVito, who might be the best thing here. Uh, he becomes... Uh, an ambulance chaser You're trying to sign up sure thing, legal cases to fight insurance companies and the like. Um, so uh, Damon's character, Rudy, helps an elderly lady named Miss Birdie, played by Teresa Wright from Shadow of, the, of a Doubt. Awesome to see her again. Um, of course, now she's a senior citizen in Shadow of a Doubt. She was a teenager. Now, and uh, with her, Will, she wants to give all her money to a televangelist and not to her kids. And, uh, and then he... Uh, Rudy ends up helping a family where the son is dying of leukemia, but the insurance company won't pay. And he starts to get close to uh, a young woman, Kelly Riker, who is uh, being abused. Uh, she's in a relationship with a with a man who's abusive. Uh, she's played by uh, Claire Danes, and that's the part of the film I thought was sort of the weakest. We, you know, once as long as the film is is focused in on the insurance company and the and the kid and the family, that's the part that works the best. Um, I felt like the the romantic side plot or subplot was just kind of a distraction. But uh, you know, it, it, there's lots of great actors: Mary Kay Place, John Voight, Virginia Madsen, Roy Scheider, um, Danny Glover. But uh, but yeah, I felt like it was generally anonymous and serviceable. What did you make of uh, the Rainmaker, Stephen? Yeah, I would have liked to see more of the adventures of of Rudy and um, and uh, Deck working for bruiser but of course bruiser is out of the picture after about a half an hour and then it's full on into this uh this lawsuit against the insurance company which you know it's interesting seeing the young matt damon you know sort of in this uh little guy versus the big company kind of story the david versus goliath thing but you know the stuff that i kind of wanted to see sort of goes out of the picture i guess so he can be a you know a noble hero because John Grisham, I guess, was all about restoring the reputation of lawyers in these series of thrillers. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed Damon's performance. You know, the, there's, a, there's a certain thrill in watching a company get taken down, I guess. We get a nice uh, 
couple of scenes from Roy Scheider later in the film, and uh, and and sort of uh, you know Rudy outsmarting the the slick lawyer played by John Voight uh, is always good for a watch. But uh, yeah, I didn't. I don't think I enjoyed this as much as I did the first time around watching it. Uh, I think I think it's it's an okay legal drama, but it, it could have been a lot more interesting. I think. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you there. I mean, it's hard to go wrong with this cast. But uh, I think for me, coming to uh, to this, knowing that it was a Coppola picture, I guess I expected much more, and that was the, the mistake I made. Um, you know, and even the score from Elmer Bernstein, I thought was pretty mediocre uh, and just distracting from from the drama. Uh, but once again, Rourke shows that even in a in a brief supporting role, he can uh, he he will always kind of grab your attention and, and hold it. So uh, you know, if that's a uh, that's a sign of a, a quality actor uh i think uh, i think he's he gets he gets a thumbs up from me well that's it for lens me your ears look at the career of mickey rourke uh obviously with a familiar filmography like that we can only look at a handful of titles uh given our time constraints but uh it was it was fun to revisit these films for the most part and uh and catch up with uh some titles we'd both always be mean to get to and he's certainly a fascinating actor uh and worth uh worth keeping an eye out for any quality projects he might be appearing in as a lead or character actor uh in uh, in years to come my name is stephen cook and you can find me on twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e and i'm karsten knox you can find me on twitter by my blog title is flaw in the iris and of course lens me your ears has a facebook page and a twitter account you can always communicate with us that way and as always we like to thank the folks at ckdu 88.1 fm who air the show every other tuesday at 5 30 p.m and give us the use of our studios when uh, when they are available and also the village soundcast network who fix up the audio and get us up on the podcast platforms thanks and we'll see you next time Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>